Welcome to Sweat the Details, brought to you by Nest Realty. I'm Jim Duncan, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Kaufman, Keith Davis, and our guest, Bob Youngenthal, the CEO of EYA, a residential developer located in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Taking a ride to the D.C. area, or many cities in America for that matter, you will uncover new neighborhoods, some with single-family homes and some with townhomes. What has become more and more common, unfortunately, are new, new communities in which house plans are being used multiple times in one city, in multiple cities at the same time, with complete disregard for whatever those house plans fit in the city or the region. In the end result are neighborhoods that are commonly known as cookie cutters. You can never discern exactly where you are in the country. For over a decade, we've been tracking the work of Bob Youngenthal and his team at EYA as they've built dozens of communities throughout Northern Virginia and Southern Maryland. One thing that makes these communities special is the energy that EYA puts into making their architecture blend with the existing neighborhoods around them. And we wanted to hear from EYA the story behind their process. And we wanted to hear from EYA about the story behind their process. Bob, thanks so much for joining us this morning on Sweat the Details. We appreciate your time. And uh, for those listening, this is Bob Youngentob, the CEO of, of EYA, a townhouse developer in Northern Virginia, Southern Maryland, and the Washington, D.C. area. Bob, wanted to kind of just kick this off. We have... Uh, followed you guys for a long time and, and have watched your, your work and have been just unbelievably impressed with the type of, of projects that you develop, the, the quality of the architecture and, and the amenity packages that you put together uh, for, the, for the residents. And we just wanted to kind of get an idea for what kind of excites EYA or a little bit of, of kind of how you guys start projects and how you think about what what you're looking to include in those as you as you develop a project. Um, so let me just clarify one thing. I think uh, you mentioned that we're primarily a townhome developer, which is correct. But we're actually, I would say, referred to as more as a residential developer, where we have developed expertise not only in townhouses, but also um, we do multifamily rental now, as well as uh, some limited amount of multifamily for sale condominiums. Um, to answer your question in terms of what excites us, I think, you know, it, it's, it's at different stages of the process. Obviously, the excitement of, um, of a new project and the opportunity and the visioning process is incredibly stimulating and exciting. But I think at the end of the day, what's really exciting is when you go back into communities where we've um, successfully developed um, new residential and kind of watch how, watch how it impacts people's lives, you know, whether it be shorter commutes or seeing people, you know, out on the street, you know, engaging in new friendships and relationships, um, you know, shorter, uh, short, shorter time frames, you know, for access to recreation or retail. Um, that's, I think, what's really exciting to us is uh, seeing how what we have created impacts lives in a positive way. Wow, that's a, 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 a an amazing and laudable goal, and, and it's something that for for me, I, I mean, I, I this is Jim talking. I primarily do residential real estate representation, and seeing um, you know, see, seeing the the lives of my clients that have had a positive impact over the years, being able to go back and see their kids when they go from you know eighteen months old to nine years old or fifteen years old, and seeing that growth, um, it, it's kind of it's kind of amazing to see when people make good, cho- make good choices. Um, I, I mean, I was curious, we were doing research uh, as we were getting ready for this. How big is EYA? I mean, and where, and where, and when did, when did you start? I mean, is it one person to 150 or, you know, where are, where are you on that? 
Sure. Um, so the company was founded in 1992, and you know, I remember it like yesterday. You know, there was myself, my co-founding partner Terry Aiken. We hired, you know, an office manager and then uh, somebody for accounting. And you know, before you knew it, you know, we were five people and then ten people. But today we're um, about 95 uh, total um, uh, full-time staff, and that includes in-house sales. Um, our field construction, as well as, you know, a, a robust land acquisition uh, group and purchasing internal um, kind of design team that uh, that kind of manages third-party architects and consultants, and then um, also uh, an in-house kind of engineering team that works with the front end to help, you know, process projects through the entitlement pipeline, and then works to uh, contract out uh, a lot of the uh, land development work. So, um, we're we're vertically integrated, um, and you know while we've grown, um, at one point you know we might have been you know 110, 120 people. Obviously, impacts so, of you know the 2008 recession uh, caused us to shrink, but we're basically back up to our 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 you know size what we were kind of pre-recession at just under 100 people. How do you, as you've as you've gone through the the, the significant growth over the years and the retraction and now the the growth again. How have you? How do you instill the culture across all levels of your of your vertical integration? I mean, is it? I, mean, I assume that there's a shared culture from top to bottom and across all levels. I mean, how do you build and maintain um, that? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I like to think there is a shared culture, um, and I think if you talk to most people, I think within the company, um, they would also uh, agree that there is. Um, so, you know, culture is, is organic. Um, you know, when, you, when you're starting out as a company, uh, you think about survival. Um, you don't necessarily think about, okay, we're going to create this great culture. I mean, some do, and it's great when you can, but I think in the real estate business, you know, in most cases, you know, the first five years, you know, the goal is to stay in business and find the next project. Right. Um, our culture, I think, evolved over time. Um, you know, we always, focused from our first business plan on the idea that um, we wanted to do things a certain way. Um, you know, we wanted to be the best, not necessarily the biggest. Um, we wanted to have fun while we were doing what we were doing. Um, and we wanted to um, engage with people that shared a common set of values of how you do business. And I think um, we, you know, through the ups and downs, you know, through the uh, obviously, um, you know, various departments as we recruit and bring new people into the fold, um, you know, my first thing that I look for is a consistency in values and style. Um, you know, you can always teach somebody kind of how to do their job. What you can't teach is a, a, a style or a sense of values about making sure that you're treating everybody fairly. This is not a, you know, a win at all cost. Uh, you know, uh, enterprise, you know, we want things to, you know, I know it's cliche, but we really want it to be a win-win for um, not only, you know, us and for our investors, but also for uh, the local jurisdictions where we're doing work. And so um, there has to be a collaborative style, attitude, uh, kind of a soft uh, approach to getting things done um, and, to, and to, be, to be knowledgeable, you know, not to fly into situations without understanding um, you know, the implications or understanding, you know, various alternatives that might appeal to different groups. That's great. Um, this is Jonathan. I love your comments about wanting to be the best and not the biggest and really wanting to have fun. Those are some, some things that we always talk about at Nest and haven't been around since 92, but we've been around for 10 years. So just 
sticking to those, sticking to that vision and, and instilling it in every member of our team is, um, is important. But, you know, I think another piece, and this is kind of a broad, uh, term that we use a lot is, is quality. So you, it's, it, it seems like you have very similar, uh, beliefs that us is, is really focusing on quality and not, and not quantity. And, and in terms of quality is, uh, building these these neighborhoods that are walkable, that are thoughtfully planned spaces, that uh, that have timeless architecture. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you, and that's why that's important to EYA? Um, sure. I mean, you know, again, I think quality kind of runs across a lot of different aspects of of, of what we do. Um, and when I talk about wanting to be the best, you know, not necessarily the biggest. Uh, it, it literally starts, you know, in, in how we submit, you know, loan packages to a lender. You know, we want that lender to say, wow, this is the best, uh, investment summary or investment package I've ever seen. You know, we want, um, the letter of intent that goes to, uh, the landowner to be the best package that they've ever seen. So we, we literally, I think, you know, execute, we try to execute the highest level across all fronts. So when it comes to, um, you know, the design of units, uh, you know, quality uh, design is, is an art. It's not necessarily, you know, not everybody feels that a particular design, you know, is better than another. You know, some people like certain books more than others. But in terms of the execution, I think that's where we do believe that you can offer a high degree of quality, not only in the elements of design, but the elements of site design. The features, the details, you know, where you're allocating um, hard cost dollars into a community, whether it be into the uh, home itself or into the site itself, the site design. Um, and so I think on all fronts, you know, that desire to kind of, you know, be the best um, has carried through, you know, since our inception. And and maybe it was, you know, maybe it's, it was it just started as a uh, as is the way we thought about doing business, but I think it, it's evolved into kind of not only a competitive advantage, but it's a way to survive against, you know, the national home builders. I mean, we'll never be the low-cost provider uh, in the marketplace. We don't have the same buying power that an MD Homes or a Pulte might have, um, but we do have the ability to kind of give it that extra entrepreneurial effort and that extra level of quality uh, and thoughtfulness in the design which I do think gets paid for by the consumer. So, Bob, do you? I think that's where. When, yeah, when you're putting together letters of intent, and you mentioned you want that to be the best part of the, you know, best package that the landowner's seen. Do you find that the landowners, before their their properties are developed, have a desire to see something that they want to share with future generations? I mean, do people are they looking at it just as a top dollar, or they're looking at it as a this is going to be an amazing project that's that people are going to love for, for decades? Well, I mean, I, I'll say every landowner is different, right? And obviously institutional landowners, um, you know, may not have the same, um, you know, personal right. connection to a piece of property. Um, you know, over the years, a number of our sites have come from um, long-term family holdings um, where, you know, they've been in a family for generations, uh, you know, because we specialize in urban infill, um, in many cases, you know, properties have been, you know, underdeveloped or underutilized for a period of time, and then we come along and find a way to create value for a landowner. And I do think, I, and again, I might be naive in thinking this, but I think people 
um, especially when the piece of property that's been in their family for a long time, actually do care very personally about how a site is actually developed. Um, I think the reality is they want the highest price and the best quality design and the best developer, um, but they do care. And people do drive by properties after they've sold them and say, that was once in my family and now look at it today. The same reasons why I think I get satisfaction and people at EYA get satisfaction from creating quality communities, I think that landowner has that same type of um, you know, desire to see uh, a legacy on a particular piece of property um, that we have that you know that they can be proud of. So I do think it matters, and and it may not be the case for all you know like institutional players today that are just you know out there to maximize a dollar. But um, I, I think there's an element of um, of that uh, desire to see something good on a particular site that does carry forward for, for really for everybody. I I mean honestly, just as somebody who who is looked at, you know, my family is from Northern Virginia. You've done some projects that are, are near where my mother grew up. And, and I will say there's such great regional context to the architecture that you put in. Um, they just, they fit. They, and they're not, obviously, it's not the same architecture that goes in Site A as it goes in, in Site B. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit about the, the timeline and, and kind of your, your view of, of what the development period looks like and why there, you know, are there extra delays because of the, the care you guys take and how that kind of comes back to the investors and to the, to the community long-term? Yeah, I, I don't think there are necessarily extra delays. Um, I, I would think that actually potentially you get through the process quicker when you're more responsive to a community's um, concerns or a community's context. Um, it's like anything else. You know, there are so many issues that come up in a in an entitlement process. And the reality is, I think every single one of our communities we've developed, you know, over six thousand homes in in over fifty different communities over you know our our, our history. Um, we've never bought a finished lot, so we're not you know like the national builder who's buying existing you know platted engineered lots. We're always taking raw pieces of property that have some other use, whether it be an office use or an industrial use, and taking them through an entitlement process. Um, I think when you when you start with a thoughtful plan and you start with contextual architecture, um, the reception that you receive not only in the planning office but also in the communities that you're presenting to, um, I think people appreciate that. Um, rather than just throwing up the cookie-cutter um, you know, design that has been used, you know, 10 times before, um, you know, by another builder, um, when you actually take the time to understand the context of a neighborhood and design something that's appropriate for that site, um, people really appreciate it. And I think that gets you uh, through the process, maybe not quicker, but at least more efficiently right. than it might be if you come in with something that's totally non-contextual. And honestly, just to, to respond to that, I think we read so many articles in the paper about the NIMBYs who don't want development happening, that if you if you present something that is thoughtful and does take into account the neighbors and what community already exists, I, I can certainly see where that would, would start to cut down on time and, and frustration and, and bring the community together around your project versus just being yeah, against it. They're probably going to fight it anyway, and they'll say it's too dense, and there are too many units, and it's too much traffic, and it'll have too big of an impact on the schools. But In the end. I think you know when they see yeah, when they see quality, and uh, you have credibility from other 
approval processes where you've worked successfully with other neighborhood associations and other planning jurisdictions, um, it does go a long way uh, to getting people comfortable. I mean, everybody is concerned about change. People are fearful of change and uncertainty. And our job, one of our jobs is to try to uh, quell that fear that the construction process will be smooth, what you see on the drawings will actually be what's delivered at the end. And so that credibility you know, doesn't happen overnight. It, it happens, you know, by doing the right thing over and over again in different jurisdictions. And I think that's gone a long way to, uh, to help us be successful uh, in, uh, in, in future entitlement processes that, you know, they're either in now or we're looking to, to the future. So I want to, I want to keep drilling in the, on the design aspect of things. You mentioned earlier sure. that um, obviously design, people appreciate different types of design and, and, uh, and it's all, you know, it's all, kind of dependent on the person, but since you started in 1992 to where you are now, I'd love to hear the trends in design that you've seen. Like, obviously, in 1992, you probably had visions and, and, and goals then, and, and there was there was design trends then that you that you keyed on, and, on then, uh, and those have changed over time. Could you talk a little bit about what, how the design trends have changed over time? And then, love to hear what trends you're seeing now and how you're integrating them into your uh, into your developments? So, okay, uh, it's a, obviously a complicated question, but uh, I'll, I'll do the best I can. So I'll go back to the very beginning. Um, from a design standpoint, I think one of the things that we figured out early on was how you think about allocating dollars. Everybody has you know, a budget, whether it's a consumer who is buying a certain home at a certain price or a developer who's trying to build at a certain price point. And the real key is how do you allocate those dollars? Um, we always felt that there was um, an allocation of dollars that went to site and some of the site finishes um, that actually added substantial perceived value to a consumer beyond just the house architecture itself. And I think that's something that we did differently um, you're seeing more of it today, but it's something that we did differently, you know, at the very beginning. I think, um, obviously, you know, design as it relates to density is an important element, too. We tried to, um, from the very beginning, think about density not necessarily as an evil, but a way to provide more affordability. So if we were able to be creative and, you know, add another 5 or 10% uh, unit count or FAR to a development plan without impacting the, the perception of the density, um, so possibly going to a narrower width townhouse or possibly shallower depth that would then allow us to increase density across the site, that allowed us to actually offer homes at a lower price to a consumer as opposed to more or potentially pay a little bit more for the ground, enabling us to get the site. So th there were a number of things, kind of more technical design things that kind of went into our thought process and still do to this day. Um, as far as, like, architecture, um, I think what we start with always is the context of the neighborhood that we're developing. Um, and so in places like Old Town Alexandria, we always you know, looked for the cues from the surrounding, um, you know, blocks that we were developing in, you know, the historical context, um, and also kind of the, the sense of where the market was going. Um, 
you know, open floor plans on the interior, while they don't necessarily, you know, affect uh, the outside, um, you know, the, there's, you know, issues with the amount of light that we try to bring into the units, you know, so getting the largest windows that we could possibly get um, within the context of a given architectural style was always important to us. I think you know, the, the most recent trends that you will see in at least our body of work today is a shift towards more contemporary design. Um, I think, you know, we got tired of the classic, you know, phony colonial that, you know, you see throughout, you know, the region, you know, basically, you know, the gabled roof with two dormers and colonial detailing. And we, you know, shifted to more of an urban row house uh, kind of, uh, module where, you know, we have flat roofs and rooftop terraces, um, and much more contemporary exteriors than I think, you know, would have been acceptable, um, you know, 15 years ago or even 10 years ago. And I think the market has responded really well. Um, I think, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you see that now everywhere. So, um, while we may have been a first mover in the contemporary kind of flat roof, you know, design or look, um, now, every single developer um, that we see out there is uh, is offering it. And so, you know, the challenge is how do we stay ahead of the curve again uh, to continue to try to provide, you know, cutting edge. Um, and one of those ways is, you know, trying to um, continue to be as efficient as we can in the square footage of units with the goal of, you know, if we can offer the same program, the same quality in possibly a slightly smaller version, then we're able to bring the cost down. And I think that's the challenge for all of us everywhere today is uh, is dealing with the, the issues of affordability and trying to, um, you know, design and deliver quality product um, that is more affordable to a broader range of buyers in today's world, especially in the urban market. So, Bob, one, one point, just a, a question of clarification on that. You Obviously, you guys work heavily within the urban market, so you're, you're – uh your buyers may span an even broader arena than many developers who work in townhouse and, and apartment development do in other markets. But have you all seen a shift from what you expected? I mean, obviously, since 1992, things have changed. But in terms of who the buyer profile is and, and the range of buyers that are looking at townhouses versus those who would be seeking out single-family detached in the past or a change in, in, in what they're looking for in that housing? Uh, again, multiple questions thrown yeah. in there. I will say that the shift um, is not necessarily one where it's changed. I think well, the way I would describe it is, you know, we were doing smart growth and um, selling to kind of the typical urban buyer in 1992. You know, the, the young professional, the single, um, you know, uh, divorcee or single, uh, you know, uh, a middle-aged person, for whatever reason, you know, decided not to be married and uh, live in an urban environment, and also empty nesters back then. Um, you know, urban environments are not new. I mean, you know, you look at you know places like New York City or you know, Boston or Old Town Alexandria. I mean, there's always been, you know, for hundreds of years, kind of this pattern of people wanting to live in the city. I think what's changed is a there are you know, the cities have become better places to live. And so, like, the transformation in Washington, D.C. Um, has just been remarkable. And so what's happened is more and more neighborhoods have been opened up to this style of living. Um, it's become, you know, kind of, you know, what everybody talks about. Empty investors want to get closer in. 
um, you know, the retail amenities, the restaurants, everything has, you know, kind of shifted its focus um, to these urban locations. And so for us, while, um, you know, some would call it a change or a shift in demographics, to us, it's we were just ahead of the demographic trend, and they've just come towards kind of our way of thinking. Um, and, and again, we didn't revolutionize it. We didn't create it. Um, it's been around, you know, for thousands of years. We go back to Europe. It was just adapting it um, when back in the early 90s, people had really, you know, shifted their focus, at least from a development standpoint, to more suburban locations. And again, that's when we when we started the company. Our initial focus was... You know, we saw the opportunity, uh, you know, in urban areas and the demographic shift has come to us where we've really kind of stick, stuck to our, our original business strategy. I mean, it, that's, that's, again, it's really fascinating to hear about the shift over the years. Um, but the, one question I had also is I've been doing practicing real estate for 18, 18, 19 years now. And when I started, it was there and then the crash happened. And I, I discerned that there was post-crash a desire for more community and common spaces and people articulating that they want to be part of something. And it's, I sense that that's something that your communities offer is that common space and community and the opportunity for, as you said in the beginning, meeting and interact, interacting with your neighbors. Have you seen a, a similar trend as far as a, a, through your, you know, since 92? Uh, it's, it's an interesting question. I, you know, that's like, I, I do think people buy in our neighborhoods and we think about the design as neighborhoods, as not individual homes. And so whether it be um, a neighborhood that has a community space or where the community space is the street front in front of, you know, a string of row homes, um, we've always thought about it from a neighborhood perspective and creating that opportunity for interaction and engagement and for a sense of community. Um, you know, hence our, our name of our company is EYALC, but it's really the neighborhoods of EYA. We're not focused on just building the individual house. Um, so, I, you know, I haven't really thought about it from a, a, a social standpoint, if there's been a shift in people's psychology of wanting it more. Um, I do think, you know, at least in our, our newer communities now, one in particular, um, you know, the idea of where you're able to offer, uh, and I, I don't like the word community center because I think it's so dated, but the idea of a, of a hub or, you know, a heart of a community, um, and offering, you know, lifestyle, uh, opportunities for people to engage and interact, you know, through other activities. That is something that people, um, desire more and more does differentiate um, I think ourselves from uh, some of the competition. Um, the problem is it, it has to happen in scale, and so if you're only building, you know, five or six units or right. ten units in a neighborhood, it's hard to do that. Um, most of our communities are 50 to 100 units, and it does provide a greater opportunity to create that type of environment and really provide ways for people to engage in a more social uh, social level. Wow. As we wrap up this conversation. I, I do want to ask one question. So the podcast is Sweat the Details, and at Nest we, we sweat a lot of details, and clearly you and EYA are sweating a lot of details on a daily basis. You know, uh, So I'd love to hear what's the one detail that you're is constantly in your mind and constantly in your team's mind that you're sweating and that you're focusing on? Uh, 
Uh, we keep the air conditioning out so we don't sweat yeah, that much. That's good. But um, we do we do sweat the details, um, and I would say it comes back to execution and this idea that um, you know we're never going to be the cheapest builder. We're never going to be able to buy appliances you know cheaper than the others. Um, so it's really the, the details around execution, um, and it comes back to this idea of trying to do it better than everybody else. And I know that may be subjective, but I think. Um, you know, if you talk to anybody in the local planning agencies, um, you know, or, or even some of the public agencies where we've been able to do public private partnerships with, I think, I think they would, what they would say is EYA is, you know, is honorable, trustworthy, and they do it just better than everybody else. They do it at a higher level. And so, you know, we're very, I think, you know, I'm demanding of myself. I think we're demanding of the people who work for us. But it's all about, you know, realizing that, you know, you can do it, you know, a certain way or you can try to do it at a, at a significantly higher level. And that's where we sweat the detail is, uh, is really trying to execute, like I said earlier, you know, in every aspect of the process, whether it be construction of the, you know, land development, construction of the unit, the sales and marketing effort. We want people to walk into a sales office or walk into our homes and say, wow, there's something different about the quality or the, um, the effort that went into that particular project. And I think that's where, that's where we continue to push ourselves is how do we, how do we do it better and how do we, um, you know, continue to maintain that level of, uh, of above market performance. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And I think that, you know, it, it comes down to, it sounds like it just comes down to pride. You, you just want to be proud of every, every neighborhood you develop every common space you know every home you build from the inside every home you build from the outside and you just want your clients to be happy and so that pride of uh of 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 ownership of it is uh clearly resonates um with us so thank you so much for spending time with us it was fascinating and it's great to hear about uh, eya and where you've been and where you're going and uh we really enjoyed it Bob, thank you. Thanks, my pleasure. Thanks so thank much for the time. No, enjoy. Really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.